behavior, bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey, and we are here with episode 78. Casey, what do you have? Today it's episode 78. Don't be late and don't hate. And this episode's going to be great. And the reason for the don't be late is because these are our guests that ghosted us two weeks ago when we had to do our own episode. And then we canceled the following week and third time's a charm. And we are here and we're so excited. We have two amazing guests today. Um, Before we get started, though, I do want to get in. You know, we need to pair ourselves. We always do this reinforcement, socially mediated from you guys. We love you. This is from future BCBA in PA. Can't get enough. Currently studying for my BCBA and can't tell you how much applying everything to real life helps. Can't get enough of Casey and Liat. Pause. I like how she put my name first. It's never first. It's always Liat and Casey. Guys, she's bitch too. Get it straight. <laughs> and the guests. Yes, the guests are what make the show. I am forever taking all the resources and knowledge back to my bosses. You girls make me look so good at work. LOL. Highly recommend for those just getting their feet wet in the ABA world to seasoned BCBAs. There's something for everyone. Love you. Mean it. That is awesome. And you are going to pass your exam and go be a great behavior analyst. Thank you for leaving that amazing review. We eat that shit up. All right. On today's episode, we are so excited to have two guests. Two is better than one, which is why there are two bitches. And today there are two guests um, that we were connected with through an amazing listener um, on Instagram, Shannon Gavin. Shout out to you. You reached out. I remember the day you were like, oh, my effing God, I just listened to the Bruce Lisker series and my father-in-law was crucial in this story of I'm going to just give it away helping Bruce get the F out of prison so if you guys know all those episodes we did we did a three-part series with Bruce Lisker so today we not only have Bruce Lisker back which I'm so excited about but we were able to connect with Jim Gavin and Jim Gavin is responsible for getting Bruce Lisker out of prison after 26 years for being wrongfully imprisoned for the killing of his mother. The story that these two have is mind-blowing, and I think it just has to be shared. So we talked with Jim for a while. We had an amazing hour-long conversation. He's a cool-ass dude, and we were like, let's do an episode with the two of you, not just, you know, let's bring the full story full circle. So welcome, Bruce, and welcome, Jim, to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be Welcome, guys. And I just want to say shout out to Shannon. I have this weird feeling that she's going to pass the test in the near future. I, I am able to see things in the future. And I have this feeling I see Shannon as a BCBA. So, Shannon, thanks for the connection. Shout out to you. We really appreciate it. Let's get started with this because this, I think, might be one of our most exciting interviews that we're doing. I think what we should start with is if anyone hasn't listened to the three-part series with Bruce Lisker, I want Bruce just to tell a little bit about what happened to him. And um, then we can get to get the story rolling for those that haven't listened to that. Sure. So um, I was a teenager of the seventies and I uh, kind of a little pothead and um, basically <laughs> just was more interested in writing poetry than going to school. And I got myself into hanging with a crowd of people that uh, proved to be more dangerous than I had ever anticipated. Um, I was in March of 1983 arrested, uh, tried and convicted for the murder of my mother, a crime I had nothing to do with. And I spent 26 years in prison before I was able to prove my innocence, uh, largely through the incredible assistance of Jim Gavin, um, who I consider a hero who's on the show today with us. 
and um, and I was exonerated and returned home in 2009. Um, it was a hard road. It was a difficult road, but here we are. And the one thing that I love about you so much is your positivity. Energy. Yeah, like his. I, I remember in our episodes, I'd be like, I was in the always like, I'm so angry, like, rah, right? And, you know, Bruce is just like chill and just kind of, you know, you know, just has a really amazing mindset for something so mm. horrible to happen to him. Um, mm. Now, Jim, you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, uh, my name is Jim Gavin. Uh, I spent 32 years with the Los Angeles Police Department. I just recently retired uh, as a uh, lieutenant in charge of homicide and uh i'm really excited about doing this i've been married to my high school sweetheart for the past 34 years mm-hmm. it'll be 35 coming up and we have uh four wonderful boys and uh they're all doing great and mm-hmm. uh i'm happy to be here we're happy to have you both and i know we had to wait till you retired to do this and it's been a, <laughs> it, actually that was probably like six, at least six months ago, I feel like when we first connected via email. And so we've waited a long time to be able to do this. Um, so super grateful and excited. There's so build the two up. of you. There's build up. We've been waiting for this. So it's, it's finally happening. And then we got ditched. And so the fact that this is finally happening is just perfect. I'm having a hard time letting go of the fact that we got ditched, I think. <laughs> it brings me back to my ex my ex-boyfriend who, who <laughs> ghosted me and never came back uh, so this is i mean i have so many questions to ask but i mean i imagine when you guys see each other or when you talk i mean i imagine for you bruce i mean i can't imagine seeing someone who and i remember when i was speaking to jim about you know how I, I think maybe I should start off by saying how this landed on how Jim got involved in this at all. And then I could say a little more, but like, how did you two get connected that obviously Bruce, you were in prison and how did it like Jim, where did you come into the picture? Were you working in the prison? Were you somewhere else? How did this happen? No, that's a good question. Uh, at the time I was, assigned to internal affairs, investigating uh, misconduct by police officers. And uh, I came to work one day and on my desk was probably six inches of paperwork and it was a complaint. And it basically read that I was wrongfully committed, I wrongfully convicted for the murder of my mother. And uh, I attached everything that I believe would exonerate me from the crime. And uh, I remember sitting there and my partner that sat across from me used to be a homicide detective and he said jim just let it go just uh sign it off because we had that ability if if we could show that the courts did their due diligence the appellate courts did their due due diligence and there was no new um allegations or evidence then we could just uh send it on its way and it would be filed and be done with so bruce would still be in prison um I still had all the other cases I was doing in internal affairs and I'm that type of person where I just look at things and say, okay, well, let me just take a look at a few things because we had the ability working in internal affairs to make uh, calls and say, Hey, I want a copy of this arrest report. I want a copy of this report and it gets sent to us. So I did all that due diligence and uh, I set up a couple of interviews uh, and, and one in particular was in regards to a uh, letter that was written to the parole board 
by the lead detective who said that he had he had recently received a phone call from the family uh, that now resides in the house where the, the murder had occurred and that they found the money that was missing. That was the crux of the entire case was that Bruce went there, committed this uh, heinous crime for the money. And at that point, I hadn't even had an opportunity to talk to Bruce yet. Uh, so I, I called this gentleman up. As it turned out, he was a public defender. And uh, he said, nope, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, there was no money found at my house. And as a matter of fact, if it was my wife that found it, uh, she was dying of cancer during that period of time. And there's no way she could have found that money up in the attic. I don't know what you're talking about. So doing that due diligence, I contacted our records people. And every, every time we book evidence or we sub submit uh, a report, uh, a taped interview, a video, that uh, they put on the date, the time, and who booked it. So I went through our records, and there was no record of uh, the detective ever booking any money, any type of evidence. So that was kind of, those two things really caught my attention. And I figured, you know what, it, it, if anything, he committed perjury by writing this letter to the parole board. So that's how I basically started it. It was really a slow motion. Uh, I got a hold of Bruce Lisker's uh, private uh, investigator. We spoke for a while. He gave me additional evidence. And the one thing they didn't have, and, and, and I think this is crucial, I don't know if it's, this occurs outside of uh, California, but when a uh, person is convicted of a crime and they appeal, they get a black and white photo of all the evidence. No colored photos. So Bruce never had an opportunity to look at any of the crime scene photos other than from a Xerox copy that was provided to him and his uh, public uh, uh, wow. personal investigator. Uh, so I had all the colored photos. And so I was able to recreate the crime scene based upon the photos that were taken that day. And I started going through the information that was provided to me by uh, Paul Ingalls. And then I finally made contact with Bruce up at Mule Creek. And we spoke for a while. I gave him my phone number at work and said, hey, anytime you need to call me once a week and I'll update you. Let's see where we're going on this thing. And sure enough, Bruce did. He he called me probably once a week on occasion, maybe twice. And that was kind of interesting, too, because, you know, it starts off. Uh, this is a phone call from Mule Creek State Prison from inmate Bruce Lisker. Will you accept the call? And then I would say yes, but not realizing now this is another issue that comes up all the time is the amount of money it costs to make that phone call by the inmate. It's not just a, hey, I need to call my attorney or whatever. They're paying an exorbitant amount of money for these yep. phone calls. It, it's yep. just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, and luckily for Bruce, this was a this was a collect call. Uh, and so the city of Los Angeles picked up the tab. <laughs> It's um, the least they can do, right? <laughs> yeah, so it's the least we can do. You really should so, thank them, Bruce. You really should. I'm indebted. I'm indebted. <laughs> so I actually, I actually flew up to uh, Mule Creek and met with Bruce on two occasions. Yep. And uh, that was a journey in, a, in of itself. Uh, I rewrote the policy for the department because I just called up our air support and said, hey, I need to fly up to Sacramento 
And they said, okay, we're going to San Francisco that day. So just jump, jump on our airplane. So I did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't, now they have this whole system of checks and balances in place that you have to get permission and everything else. And that really stems from this investigation because I, again, went up there twice, met with Bruce. We went over all the uh, information he had. I showed him the crime scene photos. We talked about everything. And one of the things that came out was uh, the interview that Bruce had done with the lead detective. I went to our uh, scientific investigation division and that interview tape was missing. And it had been checked out by the detective and it was never checked back in. And that's not normal. Normally they give you a copy of the tape and they keep the original so that there is no uh, messing with the evidence per se. But now we don't have that tape uh, and it's gone. And so we had to go by what the detective wrote on all his official documents and reports. And one of the things that stood out the most to me about this, and I think really got me to start thinking about this case, was the letter that Bruce wrote to uh, the lead detective while he was sitting in juvenile hall. And in that letter, he wrote, as I sit here today, I want to tell you, I'm not the one that committed that murder, and I don't want to spend the rest of my life in prison for something I didn't do. I do believe that this person, Mike Ryan, is responsible because he showed up and then he disappeared. In the name of God, please look into that because I don't want to, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in prison. And that really stood out to me because that showed a sense of uh, that he cared that you know, no matter what you say about Bruce and what Bruce says about himself, oh, I was a, I did drugs, I, I'd rather do poems. He really cares. And you can see it and you can feel it from him. He cares about humanity. He cares about individual people. And, you know, I've noticed that for 11 years now since he's been released from prison, that he is very humble. And he, he doesn't have a chip on his shoulder He's not mad at the world. He just wants to move on. Where a lot of us have a chip on our shoulder, we're mad at the world, but there is a bigger picture in this world and that's our individual freedom that was denied Bruce. So that really struck with me. So then what I did then is I looked at the crime scene photos, I looked at the reports, um, and I noticed something in one of the crime scene photos because Bruce had told me, Hey, I got there to the house. My mom didn't come out like she normally does to to see me. And that struck me. And so I got out of my car. I went around the back of the house and I could see what I believe was my mom down on the ground. So then I went back to the car and I got a pair of pliers and I went back around the house and I took the louvers off the back window and I gained entry. I discovered my mom. She had been stabbed, bludgeoned. I called 911 and then I was arrested. When I looked at crime scene photos, I noticed on one side of the house, like you always see in, in, uh, in uh, mystery movies, detective movies or whatever, you see the placards that are evidence tags. Mm-hmm. And one of the tags was showing a footprint and that that footprint was going in one direction. But what I noticed was a second footprint, but it had not been identified or had a placard because every footprint would have its own individual, individual placard. Mm -hmm. And this one didn't. 
And so I, I really keyed in on that. And they had a picture of his shoes that he had. Um, and I went to our scientific people and they did an analysis, which was never done at the original uh, trial or, or at the beginning of this case. Yeah. And, and, and in, the, in the report and what was testified in court was Bruce's footprints were found around the house. They were found inside the house. Therefore, nobody and no other footprints were found. Therefore, nobody else was involved in this crime. And it was a it was a done by one person and only one person, and that was Bruce Lisker. And that was really they really focused on that in the closing argument that Bruce Lisker wants you to believe that somebody else was there. But where's their footprints? Where's yeah. their where's their evidence? Where does it show somebody else was there? It doesn't. You yeah. heard testimony that only one set of footprints were found throughout this house, and they're his, Bruce Lisker's. And that was part of the closing argument. So when I met with our analyst, he looked at the footprint, and he looked at the footprint that they had the placard next to, and they compared it to Bruce's shoes that they, they took a picture of and said, these shoes don't match. Hmm. I said, oh, okay. I didn't think anything of it at the time. And I said, well, what about this picture? And, he, and before that, let me back up. So he looked at Bruce's, he looked at Bruce's uh, shoes and said, they don't match. He said, let me see the other footprints. So I showed him all the other footprints in the house, next to the body, next, down the hallway, in the kitchen. And he said, none of those match Bruce's footprints. So you have to remember the DA had said in closing arguments to the jury that there was only one set of footprints. And those were Bruce's. Mm -hmm. But now I have an analyst saying, Bruce's footprint uh, shoe and the footprints in the house don't match. And then he and I said, well, what about this footprint here that's next to the one that supposedly was Bruce's and now it wasn't? He looked and he says, they match. So now we have wow. two sets of footprints. We have a set of footprints that Bruce made outside of the house, but we don't have any of Bruce's footprints inside the house. But we had this other set of footprints that matched the footprints in the house and then matched the footprint that was on Dorka Lisker's head because she was stomped. And that imprint that was never found by the coroner, wasn't found by the investigator, it was found by me. 20-something yep. years later, right, Bruce? Yep, that's right. That's right. So I found, two, I found two pieces of evidence that exonerated Bruce. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was scared shitless. I bet. I realized, I realized at that point, I opened up a can of worms. Because I was only, and let me just be honest, I was placating Bruce. He wrote this letter. He had this big, huge stack of paper. And I said, okay, let me go through everything he's talking about. Let me show that the courts did their due diligence. The jury heard the proper instructions. They came to a rightful decision. And it didn't go that way. They missed a like, huge piece. Yeah. It's just yeah. nuts. And it is nuts because it drew a big, huge blow to what I believe was the perfect criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was an advocate for, uh, for execution. I believed all those SOBs need to be put to death. Mm -hmm. And now I'm sitting there going, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. We have flaws. We have a yep. serious flaw. 
Yep. So I brought that to the attention of the people above me. And they said, just bury it. He had a jury trial. He went to the appellate court. The appellate court upheld his conviction. There's nothing else we can do. Let it go. And you're standing there with the friggin' golden ticket. Like, no. Yeah. 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 And I was told, and I remember this distinctly, because just like you said, I had it in my hand. And the last piece of uh, my responsibility with the case was to interview the lead detective Mm -hmm. about the letter that he wrote to the parole board saying that, hey, we found this money. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, look, Sergeant Gavin, that son of a bitch is going to stay in prison for the rest of his life. Do you understand me? And that was that was stated to me. And I went back to my office. I sat down and I looked at my partner and I said, I'm fucked. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where the dilemma was, because at the same time, I had been in contact with uh, the private private investigator, Paul Ingalls. Mm-hmm. And I had to tell them that the case was closed and that they would be receiving a letter saying that uh, there's nothing there to substantiate Bruce's claims of misconduct. And uh, the case is closed. And so Paul Ingalls asked to meet with me. We went to lunch. I showed him the, the uh, document that was uh, put together by the analyst, the, his report. And he goes, you realize that that piece of paper will free Bruce Lisker? And I said, yeah, I know that. And he says, I need a copy of that. And I said, I can't give it to you. It's confidential. He goes, tell you what, why don't you give me a copy and tell everybody you went to the bathroom and I went through your folder and I took it. And I said, no, I can't do that because I can't lie. If I lie, then my career is over. And at the time I had 17 years on. Mm-hmm. And I said, I can't lie. I'll be fired. I will never get another job. I've got Wait, four Why kids. did he want it? I'm a little confused. Why did he want a copy of it? Uh, his, Bruce's private investigator wanted a copy so that they could give it to their attorneys and, su- and submit it to court so that they could get an evidentiary hearing to show that Bruce was uh, falsely accused of murder. Okay. Because, because, if I could break in, because there's something called no post-conviction discovery. Discovery is the process where when you're arrested, the police agency that arrested you and the prosecutor that's prosecuting you has to turn over all the inculpatory evidence, the evidence that shows that you did it. They also have to turn over exculpatory evidence, but we'll get to that. But once you're convicted, like that whole like interchange of information is done. Like you're shut off. Like you, can that, I- That's what, that's my question. That's my question exactly. So like, I would, first of all, I want to talk about just behaviorally for one second, the importance of a permanent product. Because the fact that you were able to recreate this scene, how many years later? 20-something years? 20-something years, yeah. I mean, that's insane. So if anyone studying for the test is listening, that's a permanent product for you, something physically left on the environment to look at. That's a very real example. And also, Jim, I just want to know, because I would like to think that I'm such a just person to do this, but I want to know, when this came on your desk... How many people reach out and are like, I'm innocent, first of all? How often does that happen? Very often. Very okay. often. Number um, one. I'm saying so that I would just be like, okay, it's another person. Very often. Why were you interested in this? I mean, I, I, I am so amazed by your integrity that you decided to look at this. 
because honestly, I feel like we're lazy. People are lazy. It's like, this must be a criminal. He's in prison, right? And up until then, you thought the justice system was doing their job. By you doing this, you went against everyone else. And I'm sure there's egos involved um, in the um, criminal justice system. Like, no, I said he's guilty, whatever it is. So you like have to go against a lot of odds. What made you, like, what was your MO that you're like, I'm going to go after this? I think uh, I'm hard-headed. And when somebody mm. tells me no, and I know I'm right, then I just go for the juggler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to prove you wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to prove you wrong to embarrass you, but you're not going to tell me I'm wrong when I did all the homework. Mm-hmm. And that's, it, that's really what came I down to. You have, you have an integrity. You have a commitment to truth and honesty that um, – because I, I, I've seen your – when you – Join the force. I've seen your picture and I grew up on Adam 12 and you look like, um, which one of the, so there's two guys that were on Adam 12. You guys, you two youngsters don't know, but back in the day, there was a TV show about the police force and right. And it was called Adam 12 and there was Kent McCord and there was another actor and you looked almost just like that other actor, that look in your eye, that, that determination to do right by society, to protect and to serve, which is the motto of the LAPD. I see it in that picture so clearly. And so my answer to Jim, to the question you posed to Jim is integrity and honesty and an unwillingness to compromise that, which you demonstrated in this case. Because you got this application on your desk from a guy sitting in prison, convicted of murdering his mom, saying, I didn't do it. And here's all the evidence that I have, but still it's coming from somebody sitting in prison. And you looked at it because that's what you do. That was your assignment to look at it. And then when you saw something that didn't work, you didn't go, oh, my God, the easy way out would be to, like, shove this thing to the side and just pretend I never got it. You went, I can't do that. I can't. You looked across at Mario Valdez. You you said, I I can't. I can't do this. We got to We got to look into this. Come and let's go talk to this guy in prison. And. Yeah, I mean, yeah. No, yeah. it's, Wait, it's so, been a crazy ride. It's been a crazy ride. To me, you're a hero. You, you, you kind of bridle when I say that word, man. But a lot of people, a lot of people would have done the easy thing and, and turned and kind of like pretended they didn't see it. But you didn't do that. And that for a lifetime and beyond for eternity makes you a hero in my book. And thank you. You saved my life. You, the reason I'm sitting here right now is this man that we have on the show today. And there's no amount of words that I could issue to thank you for that. Well, thank you, Bruce. Mm. I appreciate it. It's sad that it had to take this random stroke of luck that your paper came across his desk. If it had came across the guy across from him, this, we wouldn't be sitting here. Right. I mean, no, absolutely. He was pretty good, too. He was pretty no, good. No, but, but there's, there's a lot of people. Yeah. Or any guys, any other guy, right? Basically, like mm-hmm. it just happened to me that it came across Jim's desk and he was uh, an honest person who really did the work. And even though that's a high response effort to do all the things he did, that is a true testament to the person that he is. Like it's Word. do yeah. hard things to get the results. Like, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. It's just truly amazing. And do the right thing, do the right thing in life. Sometimes, I mean, you're, you, maybe you're going to go through hard times before you get, you know, recognized for it. Maybe you'll never be recognized for it. 
but inside you know that you did the right thing and you know that you were part of the solution not the problem and yeah yeah i have a question bruce like when jim came to see you was that like your first kind of like glimmer of freedom like did you feel like i got no i was scared shitless and i'll tell you why <laughs> i mean i had some indication that, that there was a proper investigation going on but my history at that point in time with officers of the los angeles police department was not the best i mean the last time that i encountered an lapd officer it was detective monsu sitting across from me telling me that i had murdered my mom when mm -hmm. i knew damn well that i didn't do it and then his lie like carried not only that day i didn't not only went to juvenile hall but i went to trial and was convicted and was sitting in prison for upwards of you know 15 years it was approaching 20 at that point i think when you came up jim um maybe a little bit more my history with LAPD was not good. And every time I went to the board and got reminded of this thing, I got a letter in the mail from Detective Monsu saying, this man should never be released to prey on society again. Society deserves no less than for him to spend the rest of his life in prison. Is this who put you in? Mons Mon Mon yeah, 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 Detective Monsu. So, uh, yeah, and, and so um, my history with LAPD was not good. So I was, I was scared shitless. I was like, but you know what? that truth part comes in and it's like when Jim came up and Mario came up with him, his partner, and they sat down across from me in this conference room in the prison that I'd never been in this room in the prison. I lived, I lived 19 years at that prison on six and a half acres. And I had never been inside that room and it was more opulent and it was probably a cheesy governmental room looking back on it. But I mean, for me, this was like, there was carpeting on the floor. There was a fucking big screen TV in it with like a video yeah. conference system. And I was like, this is the nicest place I've been in like close to 20 years. So, um, Oh my God. When you down, say that. I sit down in this and I'm like, I had already known and realized that like, I have nothing to hide from the truth. And if I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison because of a lie, then so be it. I mean, that's the fates, but I'm going to be an open book. And you remember, Jim, when I went in, it was like, whatever you want to know, I'm an open book. I brought as much stuff as I could carry to the to this visit, but I got more stuff in the cell. Paul Ingalls has stuff. Anything we have, you can look at. Because And they wouldn't let us go past 5 o'clock, so we oh, yeah. had to come back a second time. Oh, yeah. That was yeah. the funny part. They're very, they're very strict about count time in prison for <laughs> crazy yeah. reasons. I don't know. <laughs> But I remember the second time the female uh, guard, when we were when we were being escorted out, uh, she turned to me and she she said, "So do you think he's innocent?" And I go, "Yeah." And she went, "Oh wow." So yeah. that was uh, that was kind of haunting for for her and I think for us too. Yeah, and it changed. It honestly changed my experience of living there because here are these people who guard you they they so they're a separate entity from like the people that prosecuted you or anybody else they're just there to guard you they just get the paperwork that says this man's duly convicted you need to keep him in prison for as long as it says on this paper and they do their job they don't know they assume everybody in there is guilty i mean in the back of their mind they might know a few percentage you know small percentage aren't but they don't know that it's me but i'm saying i'm innocent i'm innocent and they're like yeah or whatever but then at that moment, when LA Times article started coming out, when Jim came up and said, yeah, 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 they went, oh my God, on a moral level, like they have to sleep at night. And they're like, 
I'm guarding an innocent person in there, you know, and were they nicer to you? Like, did you I, notice so a change? I was, like, just, I was just searching for a word. It's, it's not like it was easier for me. It was different for me um, at that point because they can't treat me any differently than they do. Everybody was there else. more empathy? Like, was there like, did you feel like in there, even if they were telling you the same thing, like, go, go to the cafeteria, yeah. would it yeah. be like, hey, hey, yeah. dude, like, it's time to go instead of like in the cafeteria? Totally. <laughs> I became I became an absolute um, um, I became just abjectly like every time a new article would come out in the Times. I'd be like um, going to chat with everybody else and I'd have a Xerox copy of it that got sent to me in the mail and I'd be like, hey, you guys want to check something out? And I'd like drop it on the control booth desk there with the cops, the three cops sitting there with their <laughs> feet up, you know, watching us go to chow. And then I'd go to chow and I'd come back and I'd just, I'd see it in their eyes. They'd be like, fuck, man. <laughs> like, they'd like slide my article back and they'd be like, dude, you're like, you don't belong here. And I'm like, you know, you could have listened like, 18 years ago, but yeah. <laughs> like that good. sounds like an exaggeration. If someone typically says like, yeah, dude, you could have listened like 10 years ago or like 18 years ago. It's like, no, like actually <laughs> 18 years ago. Done so, yeah. So from, from what was the latency, guys, behavioral term, sorry, I'm just trying to add these in to fit in. Um, from the time that this got delivered on your desk, um, Jim, to the time Bruce stepped out of prison. Like, how long was this? Was this like three months? Was this six years? <laughs> seven six years. years. Six years, seven, yeah. Shut the front door. Yeah, no. six years. No, you could find yourself on the streets and then in a prison cell within like a span of months. I mean, the shit, the shit really works efficiently in one direction. You're trying, <laughs> yeah. to, run, you're trying to turn that machinery, you know, backwards. It goes slow. I mean, I cannot imagine just like from someone who spent a lot of time in a hospital alone <laughs> where they're, 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 they're supposed to be nice to you. Yeah. The discharge process. I'm always like, how the hell does it take you so long to get me out of here? I can't imagine in prison. <laughs> and like, you know, there's I'm always like, they're like, yeah, the doctor will be with you shortly. And it comes four hours later and I'm like pissed off. I mean, I can't imagine how pissed I'd be like 26 years later. Yeah. Um, but they this? speak a different language in prison. It's not like the doctor will be with you shortly. It's like, get the fuck back to your cell, asshole. Yeah, but I know. That's what I'm saying. And I'm like crying about it. Like, <laughs> how rude. No. Hey, Bruce, you know when was the evidentiary hearing? 2005. Yeah. So from 2005, yeah. where they presented the new evidence, yeah. and the judge ruled six months later that he was uh, factually innocent, it took four years. Yeah. Yep. So you were ruled innocent and it took four more years after that? What the fuck were they saying the problem holdup was? So so, so one of the things that, that President Clinton did that was a huge disservice to the nation that I believe was that he crippled habeas corpus. And he did so by imposing a one-year li time limitation, a time bar on the fact, on the, on the time between your conviction becoming final until the day that you can file a petition for rid of habeas corpus, which is the mechanism that got me out, which is challenging the, the legality of your incarceration. And so I'm supposed to like learn how to be a constitutional lawyer in a cell in a year's time between the time of my conviction becoming final and my time limit running. So that's never going to happen. So I've blown past that by a number of years. And so I had to prove 
to get in like a loophole that has since closed, by the way, you can't get into the courts this way anymore. But at the time, you could prove your actual innocence for purposes of the AEDPA, which is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, which is the thing that imposed that one year thing. Dude, you should be a lawyer. Like, you must be smart. Like, no one's going to know this much as to when you have to do it to save your life. I don't. So people have said that. And I'm like, I, the last thing in the, like my vision of hell is like, a court <laughs> like living that on. You're right. I don't, I don't really like court. I don't like court. I don't watch courtroom dramas on TV. I don't, I could talk. You're over that about, shit. I could pontificate about this all day long. But so, so I had to prove my actual innocence for purposes of getting around that one year time bar, which that was that 2005 hearing, which we did with the help of my attorneys and all of, the great witnesses that came forward. Um, I was able to show my actual innocence, my presumptive actual innocence, such that I could slip past the time bar. That's what was proven in that hearing. And then we, we then use that same evidence and those same, that same evidence adduced at those hearings to support my actual petition once I got into court. But that's why it took, that's why Casey, cause you said like, why did it take some, because that was just a step to get into the court. And then we use that step later on to actually be in court. If it weren't for Clinton, I wouldn't have been in for an extra couple of years. That's crazy. So I have a question for you, Jim. So you submitted this evidence. You decided to do what was right. And I'm sure that you got a Medal of Honor, right? No. No. <laughs> no? No. I mean, that's what I would think would happen. No, no. So what happened is, so Paul Ingalls and I had lunch. We had that discussion, and I decided at that moment to give him a copy of the, the report. I knew that that was going to be the end of my career, possibly the, you know, the end of my employment. Mm -hmm. So I got back to work, and I told the lieutenant, and he said, you did what? Mm -hmm. You're in trouble now. And so then I got a phone call from the L.A. Times and uh, told that, hey, uh, they're, gonna, they're coming after you. You're going to be relieved of duty. They're seeking criminal charges for releasing uh, confidential information. And uh, you need to come forward and talk to us to save yourself. And I'm like, no, they're not going to do anything to me. And uh, so the next day I went to work. And sure enough, they relieved me of duty. And they sent me home. So that's when I decided, I called up the LA Times. And I said, what do you want to hear? And I gave them everything I had. And they wrote uh, multiple stories based upon the information I provided. And I got to hand it to them. Uh, so, you know, there was this big mystery about where did this money go? Bruce went there to kill his mother over this money. Uh, so the L.A. Times, they went to court. And like how, wasn't it like a low amount of money also? Like yeah, it was 200. I think it was 150 or 200 dollars. 150 dollars. So the LA Times went to court, got a copy of everything, and they found a court record where everything that was entered into evidence had to be uh, documented in, in the court's evidence uh, uh, file. And one was uh, Dorcas purse. And so that had to be, uh, they had to look through the purse to make sure there was nothing of value in there. And that's where they found the $150. Mm -hmm. It was still so the money in was her never purse. missing. Still in her purse. 
Never missing. Where the fuck did things go wrong? This is just mind blowing. Like, honestly, this purse, they found it still in the house. The purse was in the house. It was in, it was in, yeah. So when I arrived. No, I'm saying this many years later it was there or they just kept. No, no, no. no. Um, They took a picture of the purse as evidence. Oh, okay. The purse was next to the phone uh, in the house. And so. When they when when this went to court and went to trial, they had the purse there. Look, this is the purse. The money was in the the money's missing. Everybody says the money's missing. But in fact, the money was still inside the purse. So when the clerk, after he was convicted, mm-hmm. did an inventory of the purse, they found the money. Yeah. They're like locking it away. It's going to go in a box forever. So it all has to be inventoried so you can see what's in that box. And like she goes. $150, you know, 520s, two, one, you know, the whole thing. And it was like that purse, the prosecutor literally held that purse up in court in front of the jury saying the money was stolen from this purse and in that purse. Was, oh, my God. You know, and it's. So remember, yeah, in the closing argument, here's the purse. This is the purse that had the money. Yeah. And the only footprints you will see or you have seen in this is are his. Yeah. 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 And, like, even if you were, like, I'm just thinking this, like, say you had gone to steal the money from your mom or whatever. Like, you could have probably just, like, taken it out of her purse without her knowing and just, like, left the house. Like, like, I'm just thinking rationally. Like, you don't have to bludgeon your mom and, like, to take $200. You could have just told, like, maybe your mom was in the kitchen or the living room and you could have just, whoops, slipped it and, like, left. Like, like, well, part of the investigation, part of the investigation took me to Florida where I talked to this guy named uh, Scapiccio. And he was, at the time, he was dying of AIDS. So he has since passed away. But one of the things that he mentioned was Bruce's mom did everything for him. Mm -hmm. Did his laundry. Brought him food. So where is the motive of stealing money? Mm -hmm. If you're already getting the money for free, why are you going to kill the hand that feeds you? Exactly. I mean, there's no motivation. No. And, And the thing was that, the parents provided the money for the narcotics. They provided yeah. money for food. They, prov- they yeah. cleaned his, every- they did everything. Yeah. And this wasn't coming from Bruce. This was an individual, independent person who was saying that. It was widely and- known. It was widely known. And I actually believe that John Scapiccio had something to do with the crime, with the planning of the crime with Mike Ryan. I, I believe that because of his actions. He wasn't in town that day because ironically and, and bizarrely, he, the FBI came and got him from Los Angeles to testify in a murder case in Florida that day, the day my mom yeah. was murdered. It was was this like a friend of yours? It was a friend of mine, yeah. It was a drug, like a... a drug acquaintance of mine that I met in this apartment, this dive apartment that I lived in at the time. That, that when I gave Jim the address when he were still worked for LAPD, he went, you lived in that building? That's like 20% yeah. of our calls out of Van Nuys Police Department. You lived there? <laughs> to this day. Yeah. So it was a terrible place. But, but um. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody knew that, like, my mom would come over to the apartment, pick up my laundry, bring me groceries, um, give me money. My dad would give me money. My mom would give me money. I got $20, 10 to $20 every two to three, sometimes four days, usually two to three days. And, and then I got bonus money, like, on the weekends. I'd say, I got a date with this girl. Dad, can I get another 20 bucks? And he'd give me another 20 bucks. If you add that up, it's like thousands of dollars a year. It's like I had, right. a, I had a job just looking for a job. That was my task. Look for a yeah. job. 
So I and dropped around on job hunts that day, which I was doing that day. And that was my perennial existence. And Bruce gave me a list of people. And I spoke to a female that was living in the Bahamas that knew Bruce. I yeah. contacted uh, some trailer park in, in Ohio. And uh, I left a message. The sheriff, actually, I got a hold of the sheriff's department in Ohio. They went out to the trailer park, spoke with the woman, and asked her to call me. So one day I get this phone call from this elderly man from Anaheim. And he says, who are you and why are you trying to get a hold of my daughter? And I said, well, I'm investigating this case. I work for the LAPD Internal Affairs. He goes, my daughter is afraid she may have done something horrible. And now she's very fearful. You know, she was in a bad time back in the 80s. And she was doing some horrible drugs, and her memory is shot, and we finally cleaned her up. And now, all of a sudden, you're resurrecting everything we were able to just push aside. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she was able to give me information. Bruce gave me the this kid that sold flowers on the corner. I found him. He, he basically uh, supported everything that Bruce was saying, and they hadn't spoken since the homicide. So I had a lot of people that were saying, hey... It doesn't fit. He wouldn't have killed his mom. But this guy would have. And they kept on pointing yeah. to this kid named Mike Ryan. And uh, so when I looked up Mike Ryan, he had a criminal record from the time he was 10 years old. And all the way up to his, his uh, suicide, where he had committed burglaries, robberies. I mean, at 10 years old, he steals a car. He breaks into a warehouse. Yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable what this kid had done. So Bruce gave me his name, but it was also given to the lead detective, and they located him mm -hmm. in Harrison County, Mississippi, or Alabama. And so they flew out there, and they met with him, and I listened to the interview tape. Mm -hmm. And it was basically, hey, I'm, I'm uh, Andrew Monsu from the Los Angeles Police Department. I'm here to investigate the murder of Dorka Lisker. Uh, I've been given your name, but let me... Before we get going, let me tell you, I already got the guy that committed the murder in custody. All right. I'm just here to eliminate you as a possible suspect. Yeah. So Mike Ryan says, well, I didn't do it because I checked into a motel at 11 o'clock in the morning on Sunset Boulevard. And he goes, kid, I already looked into that. You checked in at three o'clock in the afternoon. Let me tell you one more time. I got one plane ticket and that's for me. I already got the suspect in custody. I'm here to eliminate you as a possible suspect. <laughs> and that's how the interview went. Yeah. That is insane. It, unbelievable. And so not to mention, came, yeah, go ahead. When it came time to give up that, the uh, analyst report, it was like, somebody's got to say something about this. Yeah. 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 That's like, so yeah. is this I mean, person punished? Is this person punished who oh, does? Yeah. He was given a he was given a retirement check for the rest of his life. Yeah. That was his punishment. So this is so backwards. Like, first of all, like just talking about like reinforcement and punishment and different things. So like here you are doing the right thing. Yeah. You're punished. Right. And it's yeah. like you could have potentially lost your job. Like they take you out of your position you're in, whatever it is. And here's a person who literally was like, look, dude, I've got you. You're not going to be in trouble. Just like say, I didn't do it. Great. Great. I already have him. Yeah. And, and that person is reinforced. I mean, this is just like, 
How often is this happening? Is this happening all the time in the justice system? Oh, I think so. I, without a doubt. I really do. Mm-hmm. And the think, big thing that I remember. I there's more accountability now than there was uh, in the 80s, 90s, and the, and the, the first part of uh, the 2000s. I agree with that. I agree with that. There's so more transparency and accountability. For yeah, example, think- like I was telling you, as, as the lieutenant in charge of homicide, one of the mandates is any interview you conduct shall be done on audio, and if you're interviewing the suspect, on video. You are mm-hmm. not to have any conversation outside of video and audio with the suspect. Mm-hmm. Do not put anything in the report unless it can be supported by a video or audio. And that's yeah. how we, so there, there has been a tremendous change. So in my case, uh, yeah. in my case some, of the most, some of the most inculpatory crap that Detective Monsu invented, the whole uh, Bruce Lisker uh, committed the crime and he, and, he, and he tried to mimic the Manson murders in doing so, all that nonsense and some other nonsense that he said as well, he said, that's what Bruce Lisker told me and my partner Langren in police car going down to the polygraph. It wasn't on tape, but that's just unfortunate, you know, and so they get to like, you know, sweeten the case against you or they used to by supplying right. information and statements that you supposedly made outside of a microphone out, off of camera. And there were no cameras so in my you, case, but there was a there was so, audio. So you look at you look at my T-shirt. Bruce is wearing a was wearing a flannel shirt and the, the detective testified in court that there were bloodstains on the shirt and the, the, the pocket right here was torn. Mm-hmm. He testifies to that. But then mm-hmm. Bruce calls me and says, you know, Bruce had only been arrested one prior time in his life. Mm-hmm. And that was for a road rage incident. And, and it went nowhere. Yeah. But he goes, I do remember wearing that same flannel shirt. Yeah. So I went and checked. And sure enough, in that booking photo and the booking photo he had taken the day of murdering his mom were the same flannel shirt with the same torn shirt. The same pocket was torn. But he had testified that that shirt was torn during a struggle with his mother Mm-hmm. Even though it was torn eight months prior. Yeah. Yeah. And the blood stains, they turned out to be grease. Yeah. So, yeah. There is just so, so that's much. That's what we so were much. dealing with. That, I, yeah. And, and, and the management of my department, the people that get in front of the television and talk about trying to reduce crime, mm-hmm. supported that detective. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you get your job back? No, go ahead. I never got fired. Once the LA Times wrote their story, there was a huge backpedal. Yeah. Oh my God, what? No, 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 we didn't relieve him. What? No, no, we just sent him home to have a couple days off to relax. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no. He, no, he wanted to leave internal affairs and he wanted to go to training division. We didn't want him to do that. Oh yeah, it was, it was a complete backpedal. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, is and I gotta say this, once I was at home and once I was no longer, they were no, well, first of all, let me backpedal on that a little. Why I was waiting to be sent home, they started auditing all of my prior cases. And they came up to me and said, oh, we found some problems with this case. Uh, you, uh, you misstated. That's not what was said in the recording. I said, uh, yeah, that's not my case. That was somebody, oh, 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 yeah, yeah, you're right. And they left and I never heard another thing. Once I got relieved, 
Then they removed my wife from her position because she was also in the LAPD, removed her from her mm-hmm. specialized job uh, following uh, corrupt cops undercover to just pushing a desk where they started uh, auditing her cases. And she was given cases that were out of statute before she even got the case. And then she was penalized for allowing the case to go out of statute, even though it ran, the statute went out in August and she got to the unit in November. It was her fault. Mm. It was unbelievable. And who do, you, who do you raise the flag to? Right. I know. Because nobody would listen. I know. The, and and, and the, amount of, the amount of retaliation that you two suffered for doing the right thing, you directly for doing the right thing, and Carol, because she's related to you by marriage, for Christ's sake, is, that's, that's so offensive to me. And when you say, when you guys said, like, did they go back and look at old cases? They never did that, to my understanding, with Detective Monsu, who's, who's verified, nice. verified repeatedly to be a perjurer, to have lied in a letter to the parole board saying that somebody found the money and gave it to him. And then, well, I don't know, I guess, I, you know, all these lies that he told, nobody, to my knowledge, to this date, has ever gone back and looked at his old cases. No, I don't think they were, want to. Is he dead? No. Mm. No, he's alive and he's alive and retired. He's collecting his full retirement pay. He's made probably uh, 1.5 million in retirement so far. It's that's outrageous. Must be nice. It's outrageous that it's outrageous. that's what we do. That that the city council didn't go in and say, you know what? We need to change the rules about retirement and we need mm-hmm. to yank this son of a bitch's retirement because he doesn't deserve it. He wasn't he wasn't a sworn police officer, in my humble opinion. He was a criminal who took an, who stole a badge under false pretenses because of the way that he acted that was so criminal, so beyond the pale. He was willing to cut corners and he put a 17-year-old child in prison for life because he wouldn't, a few weeks after he realized it wasn't me, because I initially believed that he was. A few weeks after, when he realized it couldn't have been me after he talked to Mike Ryan, and any idiot that talks to Mike Ryan is going to know he did it, he didn't go, okay, look, I fucked up. I need to fix this. Otherwise, a child is going to go away. He didn't do that. Mm-hmm. That's a criminal. Not only that, that's a criminal. It was like his ego, like, like I'm not going to show that I did something wrong. Was it like an ego thing? Like, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, completely. you know... Um, you know, I, the best analogy I can use is like being in a baseball player where I'm batting 340 and Bruce is batting 50. Oh, Bruce, so bad. But if Bruce could get – if he could start using steroids and get up there, you know, that's what baseball players do. And so mm-hmm. with police officers, it's how many arrests, how many citations, how many cases I closed. I'm a bitching guy because look what yeah. I've done. And, mm-hmm. and that causes people to cut corners. The pressure to cut. So the contingencies they have set up, essentially, like that's what's being rewarded. Like how many arrests you're doing as opposed Mm -hmm. to like how many like how many actual bad people have you got off the street that actually like you have. Right. Like, I mean, right. Or they're taking the wrong measure of like something like what you did should be rewarded, right? Like they're, they're not right. taking a valid measure as to measure how good someone is. It's like going yeah. to the gym and measuring the, like, oh, you're such amazing at going to the gym and working out. You were there for three hours and 
but like you might have lost like two calories, right? Like you weren't doing right. anything. Like but as like opposed, you, guys, you know, you, you guys are in New York, right? So this uh, is where this, New Hampshire, Dallas, New Hampshire, Dallas. Okay, so in Dallas, New York, New York same thing, you know. Okay, so <laughs> but a lot of the large metropolitan police departments are doing this based upon what was learned from New York is Comstat, which was brought on by Bill Bratton. He took it to L.A. It's how many tickets did your precinct uh, cops write? How many arrests did your cops write? How come they didn't do any more? How come more? I want more. I want more. Yeah. And what happens to, to the human being is I got to write more. Okay. Uh, you didn't have a front plate. Uh, uh, you weren't wearing your seatbelt. Now we're just picking on anybody just so we can get numbers. Yeah. And it's no different being a homicide detective especially back then where they didn't have the video cameras, the audio camera, all the stuff that, that creates transparency wasn't there. Yeah. So it was very easy to cut corners and say, look at me. I've been a homicide detective five, six months, and I got my first case solved. Yeah. yeah. And they're not coming into contact with the consequences. So like I'm thinking here, like just as a behavior analyst, I'm like, first of all, they need to hire a behavior analyst to come on in there and be like, <laughs> what are the contingencies that are set up in here? What is the incentive? Like, what's the incentive program that like, yeah. if anything, like what you did should be so rewarded and like should be hung up on the wall. And like, yeah. that should be in all the trainings. Like that's what needs to happen as opposed to, I mean, to think this is happening everywhere and the consequences. I mean, you know, everyone takes shortcuts in different jobs you hear people like over billing even like in our field of aba you'll hear people like fraudulent billing because they're being rewarded for more hours they do or more rest but like this is someone's i mean not saying that fraudulent billing is okay at all but i'm saying like this is someone's life like you spent 26 years here so like this is something is it like an urgency in the criminal justice system to fix this like do they feel any sort of urgency or they're like no. Uh, it's just the process like it, it's there's not there's not because there's nobody who's so you have to you have to take a more mature societal view of it and have some sort of like legislative like input based upon that and nobody's in a position to do that because police unions are like stop fucking with our rank and file right we need to protect our rank and file. And so we need to have rights when accusations get made. The police officer has to have a right to be cleared and da 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 da, da. So they're kind of anti-interested in that. Um, it's starting to change because, but not systematically to the degree that I think these prosecutors don't really want to look into it because they get to solve their cases. They get a high conviction rate. An officer gets a high solve rate on the cases put before him. Prosecutors get high conviction rates. And so what, what winds up happening is that, and the courts don't care because they're supposed to be neutral, so they don't have their hands in either you know, thing. And it's, it's just, yeah. It's, no, you, it's I, I get what you're saying. You're saying like it's, it's incentivized completely wrong. It's like you're getting oh, yeah. rewarded. What I was going to say is you can't like algorithmically apply it. Like what Bratton did, um, you can't al algorithmically say arrests are up, tickets are up, this is up, good policing's in effect. You can't do that. You have to have a more hands-on approach because you have to look at the nuances of every case for a ranking that's going to be accurately right. reflective of what's going on. And police unions or police commissions, I think, are supposed to kind of do that, but they really, they're the oversight, but then they're not really doing that, if I understand that correctly. I don't know. 
I think the whole criminal justice system, I think the whole criminal justice system ha has to do a, a, a real look at themselves in the mirror. Uh, when I was a watch commander about eight years ago, you know, and we, we hear about bullies all the time, you know, how bad bullies are. We shouldn't anti-bullying this, this and that. Well, the school police bring this kid in and I said, okay, so what's he here for? Vandalism. Oh, wow. What happened? Oh, he, he's got autism. He was being picked on and he was being bullied and he got upset and he knocked all the computers off the tables. Mm. And I looked at the officer and I said, and he's getting arrested. <laughs> yeah. How does that work? Yeah. Not he the bullier. Bullied. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and see, w we've lost it as a society when a child mm -hmm. that's having, you know, some mental health issues and he's yeah. struggling and bullies are able to pick on him. And then when he reacts to that, he gets in trouble. Yeah, yeah that's not I, fair It just dumbfounds me when that stuff happens. But luckily, then I got into a position when I took over detectives at Van Nuys, I was able to make small incremental changes on how we were going to do things. And then when I took over homicide, I was able to think back to what happened to Bruce, and I was making sure those things weren't happening under my watch. Yep. You know, that I had expectations. I want to see the evidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and I sat in on all the interviews and listened to all the tapes to make sure these types of things didn't happen again. We need more wow. Jim Gavins. Wow, absolutely. Yeah, we do. You, well, you, you, you epitomize what it means to, to be sort of like, if I could sort of paraphrase Gandhi, like to be the policing that, that you want to have in the world, like to be the policing that you would want to be in place if, if a member of your family came in, you know, shit hits the fan and you call 911, you're the type of cop that you want, that I want, that everybody wants their family to encounter when, mm -hmm. when we do encounter police. And it's just, I, I think that the culture changes. I think every generation gets it a little bit better. And I think that like the people that we talk to in the college classes and the ethics classes and, yeah. uh, you know, are, are it, I think that's so vital. Um, because yeah. they're tomorrow's policing, they're tomorrow's police force. And I think every generation gets a little bit better and realizes a little bit, you know, more of the sins of the father. And we kind of, we're not going to revisit those and we're going to mm -hmm. reinvent it. And I, yeah, just, but doing what you did, like reviewing it all, like actually reviewing it all, not just like, uh, is this all in line? Okay. Signature at the bottom, pass it on because I got a stack of paperwork to do today before I, you know, get to go home. Thank you for doing that. I mean, you know, it sounds gratuitous, but my God, thank you so much for doing that because that could have prevented what happened to me personally and countless others when you on your watch. So yeah, right on. Jim practice some philosophical doubt. That's what we call it when you question things, right? Um, okay. So it's hashtag bullshit detector. You know, <laughs> you get something as a fact, and we should all have that philosophical doubt when things are wrong, when things are, and I think this is a really important message also for the world right now. I mean, I think like this past year has been a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of police brutality, um, things going around, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. And what can we do as a, like how, how can we do better or how can, 
because there are people like you who are amazing, you know, making these changes. We just had Scott Tillema on who is, you know, he like, he doesn't want to arrest people. Like you're saying, I don't want to arrest people. Like if I could like really like genuinely like get to know what is this person needing in this moment, you know, how, what, what can be the change? Like what is going to make the change when these, I feel like at least what I'm hearing, the criminal, it's so wrongly incentivized and you know, what, what can be the change? Well, first of all, I think we have to do better backgrounds on, on police candidates uh, better real life training with police candidates um, and ongoing training about how to communicate with people. Because unfortunately, we spend the majority of our time dealing with very difficult uh, situations that occur in society. All right. Mm-hmm. right? So you're talking about from childhood sexual assault to, to murder. But we don't do a good enough job in working with the individual officers and debriefing and talking about their feelings and some of the emotional uh, baggage that they hold on to after these types of incidents. And I think it's very important. I think we got to stop worrying about how many arrests we make, how many citations we write, because we're, we're pushing these people for the wrong reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, it should be to, to engage the community and be a part of the community, not against the community. Mm-hmm. And that's where we lose it. You know, George Floyd, that's a prime example. Why are you putting him on the ground and forcing him down like that? There were four of you there. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why that happened. And I don't understand after he was pleading for help, no help was provided. I mean, mm-hmm. we've known for 20-something years that you don't put somebody on their chest when they're having these types of episodes where let's say that we, we may not know that they have heart problems, right. but then you add alcohol, you add uh, drugs. And let's say like me, I'm considered obese. You put me face down with somebody's knee on me. I'm going to die because mm-hmm. I can't breathe and my heart can't pump. Yeah. And these are things we've known for gosh, since 1990, mm-hmm. but we're still doing it. We got to come up with better mechanisms to deal with people who are in crisis, and we're not doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I think also seeing the individual, like you know, as we do with people that we work with, looking at it seems like it's just like so quick, like protocols. We we do an arrest. We do this. Blah 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 blah. blah. It's like to actually take the time and see the human. You know, maybe like mm-hmm. are they? I I feel like. I imagine, I don't know, not a police officer, but in training, you know, you're teaching, okay, this is how you deal with a bad guy. This is how you have to like, you know, you hold that. This is how you want to make sure that like you go into a situation. This is the demand you want to give. Is, I mean, and maybe it's changed because I know you were a police officer for a long time. Are they ever talking about like, but look at the person, like potentially this person might be distressed because something has badly happened to them? Or is it the idea of like, you're going to get the bad guy? Because I mean, that's when you teach a kid about police, right? Typically when you're teaching kids about community helpers, we teach kids with autism, community helpers, police will get the bad guys, right? Like that's what it's. Yeah. And the parents, the parents reinforce it. Yeah. We'll go out of a restaurant. We'll be walking. You see that person, they're going to put you in prison. And that's the worst thing you could do to a child. Mm-hmm. we're not going to put you in prison. We're there to help you. 
But for yeah. some reason, everybody's yeah. got in their head, they got to tell their 8 to 10 to 12-year-old, mm -hmm. if you're bad, they're going to put you in prison. Versus being a community helper. Yep. Well, I'm glad that you, this, you know, story ended the way it did. I know in 2014, you got the Courageous Truth Award from the Innocent Project, which I think is amazing and you deserve it. Um, and thank you both for coming on and sharing your story and being so open and vulnerable um, with our listeners. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. This was fun. I've never done this before. Hey! <laughs> this is great. I had wow. a great time. Yeah. yeah. Thank I you. I love that. Cool. I'm glad thank we finally you, got thank this done. You. Oh, me too. This is just like... My heart has all the feels. And if I was Casey and I was extra sensitive to getting goosebumps, I'd probably have them too. <laughs> Casey gets goosebumps from everything. She's like, oh my God, they smiled goosebumps. Anyways, <laughs> I didn't say anything rude to you today. So I had to say something I before know, we end. Slide it in. <laughs> yeah, it's like insert. But anyways, guys, thanks for listening. You know where to find us. You can find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, Facebook, Behavior Bitches Podcast. You could find us on the internet, behaviorbitches.com. And as always, love ya. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need super. him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him. And he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 